My global IQ is 109. I'm your host, Jim Falk. We are talking with Tracy Walder, whose book, The Unexpected Spy, arrived in bookstores today, February 25th. Tracy is a longtime and valued friend of the World Affairs Council, as we have frequently called on her to talk to students about her remarkable career, going from the CIA to the FBI to becoming one of the most popular and accomplished teachers at the Hockaday School, an all-girls school where she has taught American history, foreign affairs, and national security. It's great to see you, and thanks so much for giving us the opportunity to share with you the book launch. Thank you for having me, Jim. I really appreciate it. You were recruited between your junior and senior year of college for the CIA. Is this because the process is so arduous and lengthy? Because uh, although the length of our podcast doesn't give us enough time to talk about the whole process, but I'd like to hear a little bit about it. The process is arduous and lengthy, but you have to remember, I think, you know, when I was first... When I first started the process, I was 20 years old, so I didn't have all that much baggage, if you will, uh, for them to sort of go through and clear. Um, So I cleared relatively quickly. I applied in February, March of my junior year, um, and I was given a conditional offer of employment in November of my senior year. That was contingent upon my graduation. That is pretty quick. Um, Most people can take anywhere from a year to a year and a half. That's what you're told. But I do think because I was so young and just really didn't have a financial history and and all of those things. There wasn't too much to dig up in my background. Your book is a serious book, but it also has just wonderful nuggets of humor. And and I had to laugh when your mother accompanied you to Washington, D.C. Here you are interviewing with the CIA, and your mother's there in the hotel room with you. Yes, um, my mom came with me. I'm really close to my parents. I still am. They're actually here today. You know, I think part of it was a comfort. Part of it was the fact that I was only 20 years old. I was really young. Um, It's not that I couldn't travel on my own. I just sometimes it's better to sort of have a sounding board with you. Of course. Now, the polygraph, though, that wasn't so much fun for you, was it? So the CIA polygraph is what's called a lifestyle polygraph. So they're going to ask you very deep bits of information about your your life um, and just your lifestyle. For me, the question that kept uh, tripping them up was whether or not I had done um, illicit drugs. And I have never done illicit drugs, still have not done illicit drugs. But they kept asking the question over and over again. And during the polygraph, um, it's not like you see in the movies sort of with the line going up and down. It was a computerized process. And so it's measuring your biometrics. Um, And I was showing distress. But what I was distressed about was was not the fact that I was lying, but the fact that they kept asking me the same question over and over. I'm sure everyone understands what it feels like to not be believed. It's very frustrating. Um, So it came back as inconclusive, and it had to come back the next day. Um, And at that point, I passed. And you fell asleep. I did. That worked to your advantage. It did work to my advantage. Why was that? Um, I well that night um, I had come home from my first polygraph. Come home, come back to the hotel from my first polygraph. I was really, was really upset. I was sort of ready to give up um, because they didn't believe me, and that was very frustrating. Um, I ended up calling my recruiter. He sort of talked some sense into me, but I don't believe I slept that much the whole night. Um, and so when I came in for my second polygraph early that morning, the polygrapher left after a while, and he left for for quite a long stretch of time, and. Honestly, ultimately, I fell asleep, um, and I fell asleep because I was exhausted. I wasn't lying. I was calm, um, and I'm pretty sure that's why I ultimately passed. 
I was not familiar with the position of staff operations officer. I've heard of case officer and someone who works in the analysis section. But what's the difference of a, a staff operations officer? So staff operations officers are a little bit more flexible. We don't technically – staff operations officers were relatively new, actually, when I came in there. And they were designed to sort of work in the centers. What year did you start? Uh, I started in the year 2000. Okay. Um, and so they were designed to work in the center, so counterterrorism center, counter-narcotic center, counter-proliferation center. And they realized that those centers weren't traditional in nature. The way, other way that the CIA is divided up is sort of your Near East division, your Russia division, very traditional groups. Um, and those are very conducive to what we know as sort of two-year terms overseas, living in the same place, living in the same city, um, for anywhere from a year for two years. But what we realize is in the centers – you're not spending your time just in one country. You're spending your time usually in multiple countries because these are what we call transnational issues. So they needed people that are a little, a little bit more flexible um, in regards to recruiting, um, in regards to operations planning, those types of things. And sure enough, that is kind of what my job ended up entailing. You were working at the agency on 9-11. What were you doing that day? Um, so that day... I was looking at a terrorist training camp, actually, in um, Afghanistan, and I had come back to my desk because my phone had started ringing, um, and it was a, a friend at another facility, and that facility happened to actually get open television, um, and he said, you need to turn on the TV. A plane hit the World Trade Center. Um, I think at that moment, and I, some people may not be familiar with this, but a very small Cessna a few months before had actually crashed into an apartment complex in Brooklyn. And so actually that's what that's what my mind thought had happened. Um, but I, I turned on the TV just in time to see the second plane hit. And I think by the time the second plane hit, we knew that this was some kind of an attack. How did the tempo in your section change after 9-11? Oh, it became completely frenetic. I mean, you know, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sort of this sense of urgency. It's not that we didn't have it before, but it was more controlled. Um, this was just a complete urgency to stop the next attack. And in your position, you were monitoring al-Qaeda camps mm -hmm. or specific terrorists? or Specific terrorists, but then also camps. Now a word from our sponsor. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Tracy, you write in your book something that I've found really compelling. We've had at the World Affairs Council, I've interviewed Leon Panetta and Petraeus, but never anyone that was really working at the, let's say, mid-level range, which I think you I'd say entry-level range. Ent okay, entry-level. <laughs> That's fair. And you wrote this, and it's on page 132. I must say this in response to that accusation. I was there. I'm one of the people who supplied the intelligence. Not a single bit of anything my team turned in was faulty. How it was changed and twisted by the White House was faulty. The CIA did not betray the White House. The White House betrayed the CIA. And that's pretty damning. That's quite an indictment on 
On who? Well, I mean, it's true. Colin Powell did write a book saying that the information that he presented in in the charts, um, that he didn't alter it, but that he found it to be false. I mean, I was there, so they actually did change the chart that we had. They even changed the title of the chart that we had. How did that make you feel in your colleagues? I think at the time, obviously, we were enraged, but our first thought actually wasn't to be enraged at the administration. What we were actually concerned about was the fact that now all of these people, because their faces that were on the chart were shown at the UN and shown on television, were now going to probably go underground. And that makes our lives a lot harder when finding terrorists. And we could lose communications that we had on them already. And so our first thought was we just took a giant step back in perhaps stopping future attacks. That was where our, our sort of first focus was. In hindsight, do you think there's anything that professionals at the Department of State or in the intel community could have done to prevent our invasion of Iraq? I think someone could have probably stood up and said, you know, this information that they're presenting is is false, I guess a whistleblower type situation. And someone on Twitter actually did call me a coward for not standing up and, and saying that that information was incorrect. And I'm not going to excuse that. I guess in a sense I was. But for me, I was so much just focused on, okay, what are we going to do next? How are we going to prevent the next attack? I didn't focus on that as much. And in some sense, it's hard because I don't want people to feel that those who served in Iraq sort of died in vain, if you will. Um, I find that obviously disrespectful of course, as well. But I think the reality is, is the Iraq war was going to happen, sounded like to me, whether we had the intelligence or not to support it. I want our listeners to know those chapters that you wrote on this was fascinating. Really something that I think everybody should really take to heart. I want to jump to a different part of your life, and that's when you decided to leave the agency and go to the FBI. Why did you leave the CIA? I left the CIA not because I disliked it. I, I loved it. I have a lot of awards for my time there and really great friends um, for my time in being there. I left because what was inherent about the agency was sort of the overseas component. And I think because September 11th and the pace had gotten so frenetic, I think in a way I'd maybe just burned out a little bit, just for lack of a better word. Um, I really was passionate about the counterterrorism mission. So I thought one way that I could do that and sort of work in one spot doing that was to be a special agent at the FBI. And so that's why I left. You know, I'd like to believe that after 9-11 that the CIA and the FBI really started working well together. And yet your experience at the FBI wasn't wasn't very rewarding, was it? It was pretty awful. I mean, when you think about what you accomplished at the CIA and the way you were treated in training at FBI, must have left you really pretty discouraged. It did. I think inherently what it boils down to is their missions. You know, the CIA is an intelligence gathering organization. FBI is a law enforcement organization, and that sort of breeds two different mindsets. Now, I say that the sexual harassment that I experienced is inexcusable, regardless of what the mission of your organization is. You know, it was interesting. When I worked at the CIA in the Counterterrorism Center, we had a couple FBI agents that were detailed to our center. I got along with them really, really well, and we had a really great relationship. I did not find the folks at the FBI to be as amenable. The case that I worked at the FBI involved the CIA quite a bit, um, and they really had nothing but jokes to make about them. They just had a complete lack of respect for them, and I think being from the CIA, I think I was almost already marked, if you will. Do you think it's better now? I do not because currently I believe there's an EEO complaint working its way through with 17 women who are from the Bureau. One of the things that you specialized in at the FBI was Chinese counterintelligence operations. I suspect you have followed with interest what happened last month to the Harvard professor Charles Lieber. 
the chair of Harvard's chemistry and chemical biology department. I read that he was getting $50,000 a month from a university, happened to be the Wuhan University of Technology <laughs> of all places. <laughs> I mean, is that something that we've been seeing a lot of? And um, what are your views there? So um, to be honest with you, I think it is one of our largest threats. People don't tend to pay attention as much to economic espionage, which is really what trademark espionage, which is really what the Chinese are engaging in. Right. Um, you know, people obviously responded to September 11th. That's a huge loss of life, right? But it takes some time to sort of understand what the Chinese are doing. But I don't think we realize how much economically that that's costing us. The case that I worked was really interesting in that from what we understood about it, just looking back, they didn't really accept too much money from China for doing what they were doing because they were just such staunch communists and Maoists that they were doing it for that cause. And I'd like to pivot to what you're doing now, which really shows your strong commitment to being a role model and a mentor to girls. And I've known several of your students at Hockaday. And in your book, you don't shy away from confessing that you were a sorority girl, uh, like to have your, your nails done, your hair styled. How do you help high school girls understand that it's okay to be a feminine woman in a career that it sometimes people think is male-dominated, although it's changing. Tell us about what, what the girls think and, and how, you, how you address it. So I think part of just being able to do that in a, the very simplest way is we're trying to change the gender narrative um, and trying to change stereotypes that we see on TV and popular culture, which is really what's perpetuating it. There's a lot of girls just in general I talk to that say, oh, well, we can't do these careers because we're feminine or this doesn't fit us. And I think sometimes just encouraging them that, yes, that they can um, and exposing them to sort of the different avenues. You know, we expect CIA, oh, you've got to wear boots and flak jackets. And no, not always. There's lots of different ways that you can participate in these organizations. And just exposing them to that has been really great. What are you doing now? I recently left teaching just because I couldn't keep up with the pace of my book and all of that. Now I sit on the board of directors for Girls Security, and what they do is provide curriculum in foreign policy and national security and also encourage discourse amongst women throughout the entirety of the United States to get involved in these careers. And they create mentorship networks. Um, must have a website. Girlssecurity.org. Okay, last question. Last week, President Trump fired a really well-known person, very accomplished, and that's Joseph McIntyre as director of national intelligence, mm -hmm. and replaced him Grinnell. with Ambassador Rick Grinnell, an action that's been widely criticized. What say you? I do not think Grinnell is qualified to be the DNI, but I think also we just have to look at the position of the DNI itself. I'm not sure it's the most effective position. I don't know that people in, within the intelligence community think that it's the most effective position. Grinnell's really in there to promote Trump's agenda. That's the bottom line. Well, again, Tracy, I want to congratulate you on the book just published today. I suspect it's going to be a bestseller, and I hope that we help you launch it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk. This is a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I'd like to thank my producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith, for editing and promoting the podcast. We have been talking with Tracy Walter, the author of The Unexpected Spy. I'd also like to encourage you, our listeners, to review the program as that helps us broaden our reach. And you can do this on your favorite platform, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher. And with that, I ask, what's your Global IQ? I'm Katherine Loper, Programs Coordinator at the World Affairs Council. If you like Global IQ, the best way to support it is by becoming a member of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. 
Join today at dfwworld.org forward slash join or learn about a World Affairs Council in your community by visiting worldaffairscouncil.org.